Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. That's where we'll be at today. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I'll read it and then, then I'll pray. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's our text today. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, I ask God that you would meet us here, I pray, for every heart, every soul, every conflicted heart, every conflicted soul in here. I know that all of us, um, as we're filling chairs and, and sitting around in this, in this, in this sanctuary, God, um, there's desires that want to please you, and there's desires that we have that want to just live the way we want to live. And it's so hard to reconcile those things. There are things in our lives that are telling us who we are, and then we hear from Scripture that you are our life. Help us to reconcile both of those. I pray, God, that um, for those that just, when they come to church and when they read the Bible, all they hear is what they're not doing and what they're supposed to do. I pray that louder than all of that, God, we would hear what you have done for us. May we find our identity there. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would um, teach way beyond my words today. I want so desperately for this, for us as a community to understand our place in Christ. I know that only happens by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. So I ask that you would anoint me and use me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started a, a series on identity. And by way of intro, I want you guys to understand and I want you guys to know that I don't stand up here as someone who is this totally secure guy who has completely found his place in Jesus. I'm not that guy. I want to be that guy. I'm still this young pastor who's, who has almost an identity crisis every Saturday, okay? Every Saturday. Tar calls me every Saturday, and I dread saying hello. I dread it, because I know the first thing hey, man, how are you? How are the notes coming? And every single week, I'm like, why do you call me? You know how they're coming. And then I hang up. Um, and so last week, Tarek taught, <laughs> and he did a great job. But Saturday, not even Saturday, Thursday, I think, he had a meltdown. He's like, I can't do this. Like, I'm studying about my identity in Christ, and I don't even know. I, I'm like, I've, I, I've, it's completely just destroyed me. I don't even know what I'm supposed to say anymore. And so I want you guys to know, I mean, I don't know how, how helpful that is for you. You're like, great. <laughs> this is wonderful. It's a great church. Um, pastors are psycho. But we are still learning to find our identity in Christ. Um, one of the pastors that I follow tweeted this yesterday. No pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, he, he is preaching too low. And that's great. And I think that's true. Preaching about the Christian's identity in Christ is lofty, seemingly impossible at times. And the reason why it is, is traditionally, identity comes from what is identical about you in every single situation. Identity comes, that's where the word identity comes from, is you're identical, and there's something about you that's identical in every situation. I mean, even by that definition, we see how finding and discovering an identity can be so hard. I mean, what is true about you? 
you thought about it? What is true about you in every single situation you're in? What is at your unchangeable core? Where do you find your identity? They say, once you find what's true about you in every situation, that's where you'll find your identity. In other words, your identity is the truest thing about you. No matter what crowd you're in or how you feel, no matter where you're at. And what we said a couple of weeks ago when we started this series is that we tend to find our identity in three places, if we really think about it, three places. Maybe even a combination of these three places. I don't know, we're pretty complex beings, but generally three places. We said what we do, what we have, and what we desire. Those three places we find an identity. We said we find an identity in what we do, our career, our art, our craft, our discipline. That's who we are. Like, we find our meanings in things that we do. I'm, I'm Dave the pastor. You're so-and-so the artist. You're so-and-so the analyst. You're so-and-so the mom, etc. Now, this makes a ton of sense because normally what we do takes up most of our time and our thought and our life. So it's easy to find an identity here because you're at work 70 hours a week. That takes up a lot of your time. You're at school 80 hours a week. That takes up a lot of your time. So it shapes you and you think that you are your job or you are your career because it takes up so much of your time and you find your identity there and that makes sense. We also find our identity in what we have, things we acquire like money and possessions. Maybe even things that are, that are ours without our control. Like we find, you find your, I wouldn't say my, I would say your. You find your identity in your good looks maybe. Like you're the person who always, people always are trying to buy a drink for. You're always a person that, that, that people ask for your number. You're always a person that on Muni, somebody tries to sit next to you and start trying you know, strike up a conversation. You're that person every single time. And that's where you find your identity. You're the good-looking one, or you're the one with a good fashion sense, or you're super creative, or you're the one with magnetic personality. You're charming. You're delightful. You always know what to say. You say the most creative and witty things on Twitter. That's your identity. <laughs> you always know what to say. You always know what to do. Or sometimes this is negative. You find your identity in being the person who grew up without a dad or an abusive home or with a certain disability or shortcoming and you find your identity in those things we also find our identity in what we desire we say things like this all the time i want to be true to myself this is huge in this city i want to be true to myself i am not my job or my art or my family i am me i am whatever i desire however i want to express myself that's who i am so one day i might be funny and goofy and playful the next day day i might be dark and conflicted the next day, sensual and erotic. This depends on how I feel, what I desire, or if it's Beta Breakers or Pride Weekend. It just depends. I could, and whatever I desire, whatever I want, that's who I am. And this is also where we form a, a sexual identity. I am what I desire. I am what I am attracted to. I'm attracted to him, then I must be. I'm attracted to her, then I must be. Or I'm attracted to both, then I surely am this. And these attractions come with identities and communities. And this is the, this is, that's just reality in the society that we live in. That's modern society. That's a reality. I understand that. See, the problem with these identity structures, from what I do to what I have to what I desire, the problem with these identity structures is that you're forming an identity around moving parts. You're forming an identity around things that are always moving, always changing, always shaping, I mean, there's nothing that you do that's 100% secure. I mean, what if you lose your job? 
Or what if you're even probably worse than losing your job? What if you're bored with your job and you realize what I went to school for isn't what I want to do? I'm stuck in this job. Who am I? Or maybe you love what you do, but you can't find a job opening to do it. What if you're an artist and your creativity stops? Or you fail a project? Or someone way better at what you do is doing it alongside of you and they're killing you at it? There's nothing about what you have that's a given. Anything can be taken away from you. We, we know this. Health, wealth, relationships, situations, that all can be taken from us. And every single one of us, and I know a lot of you, and I know my own heart, all of us are bundles of conflicting desires. All of us. Every soul in here is a complex mix of sexual desire and spiritual desire and emotional desire and physical wants. And they're all in conflict. I mean, you want a good body, but you also want to eat everything you see. <laughs> like, there's, those things are in conflict. I want both. How do I have both? Or on a more serious side, you want to please and serve God, but you also want to disobey and do what you want to do. Oftentimes, we want to do good, but you don't have the power to carry it out. Evil lays close at hand, Paul says in Romans 7. So then, who are you? And where do you find your life? your identity, what's the truest thing about you, what's at your unchangeable core. So Paul writes in Colossians 3 that the follower of Jesus, the one who has placed their faith in Christ, the Christian, is given a brand new identity. And this is the whole reason for this series. I know it's going to take a long time. We're just in the intro of this series. We haven't even really got into it. We're just still laying the groundwork for it. Because this is so important. The whole reason why we're doing this series, I mean, the first year and a half of the, of the church, we were in the book of Mark, and we looked at the book of Mark, and we looked at Jesus and what Jesus come to do, and who he is, who he really is, his life, his work, his mission, and how he called people to take up the cross and follow him. And many people over the last about year and a half have come to follow Jesus. They've trusted in Christ and began to follow Christ. They've been baptized. They freely worship. They've taken communion. Many people. But as we're going along now, there's certain things that, okay, you follow Christ, but what does that mean? And they don't, people don't know what that means. What does it mean that I follow Jesus? What does it mean? What does it look like that I follow Christ? And one way, and what, what I guess probably many churches tend to do, is to go, okay, now since you follow Jesus, you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this, and you better start doing this and that, and stop doing that. And we could have gone that way. And we might eventually get there but we have to start somewhere else. If I asked you, what does it mean to follow Christ? And you might answer, well, it means I go to church. Well, it means something more than that. Well, it means that I love more. It's even deeper than that. Well, it means my sins have been forgiven. Okay, that's getting a little bit closer. Trusting in Christ by faith, following Jesus, this is what this means. It means you have a new identity. An identity not based on moving parts, not on emotions or conflicting desires or job opportunities or even merit and godliness. A new identity based on Jesus. And what is this new identity? Paul says this in Colossians 3. We read it a second ago. This is your new identity. Christ is your life. That's your new identity. Your life is in Christ. Christ is your whole life. 
Marriage isn't your life. I know a lot of you want to be married, some worse than others. And that's okay. That's great. It's a great thing to want. But when that want, or any want, really, but when that want becomes your life, when being married becomes your life, and you think that marriage is where you're going to find your identity, you know what's going to happen when you get married, if you get married, if you don't just scare every other person away with your obsession? (laughs) What's going to happen when you finally get married? You're going to crush your spouse. And this is why. Because somehow, in your mind, you began to believe that a spouse could save you. When I get married, then I'll be saved. When I get married, then my loneliness will go away. When I get married, all my dreams will come true. And then you get married, and you realize that's not really the truth. Career isn't your life. Creativity isn't your life. Making memories isn't your life. Christ is your life. And once you get that, then you can enjoy marriage. And once you get that, then you can enjoy your career. Or you can leave your career and not feel like you've lost everything. Once you get that, your creativity isn't your God anymore, but you can be, you can be creative because you're given inspiration by the creator. Making memories isn't your life. Christ is your life. Christ is the only one that can handle your soul. You see, not that marriage is bad. I'm not knocking marriage because marriage is the best thing in the world besides Christ. Christ is the only one that can handle your soul. My wife is amazing, but she can't handle the weight of my soul. She can't handle the expectations of my soul. Marriage can't handle the weight of a human soul. Your career can't handle the weight of your soul. Creativity can't handle the weight of your soul. Christ is your life. Last week, or this last week, I was sitting with someone asking this question. I want to ask you the same question today. Is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Think about that for a second. Okay, now stop. Don't think about it too long because you, you might get sad and all condemned. You're like, he's not. I'm horrible. <laughs> or you had a great week and you're like, yeah, he is my life. I had a great week this week. I like prayed and I read something and it was awesome. And I did get mad at people. I had a great week. He is my life, Pastor. He is. So before you get puffed up with pride or condemned, that was a loaded question. And I'm sorry that I had to ask you. It's a loaded question. I think everyone in here, if you're really honest, I'm like, is Christ your life? Everyone in here would probably say, no, with this caveat. I want him to be, but he's not. And if I asked you why, why isn't Christ your life? And you would say, because I still sin, because I still choose my own way, I still do what I want to do, I still don't pray enough, I don't forgive certain people, etc. But this is not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, and this is not the this is not the, the message of the New Testament. The New Testament, and Paul proclaims, it does not say Christ is your life if you accomplish A, give away B, and forgive C. Doesn't say that. It proclaims over you and I, Christ is your life. He is your life. It's a fact. It's not a question. It's not like, is Christ your life? Like, you know how you like do that thing at the end to ask a question? Is Christ your life? Question mark. It's Christ is your life. Christ is your life. He is. It's a fact. It's called an indicative in Scripture. 
An indicative is something that has already been indicated or declared about you. It's a fact. It's truth about you. This word here is indicative. It's true about you. Christ is your life. If you placed your faith in Christ, Christ is your life. Now, an imperative is something that we are to do. An imperative is a command. An imperative is a direction. And you're probably thinking, okay, there you go. You've, you've hit that point. The church is telling me what to do now. I knew it. It's been a year and a half. You're showing your full colors. You're going to start telling us what to do, just like every establishment does. I'm out of here. Okay. Just wait a second. We can't get these two things backwards. See, normally when we read the Bible and we sit in church, what we always hear are the imperatives. We always hear the commands, always. So when I read Colossians 3, you heard what you had to do. That's what you heard. Always. That's always what we hear. We hear what we have to do. To those of you who are a bit liberal and non-religious, non-establishment types in here, you hate the commands. You think it's a threat to your freedom. Don't tell me what to do. You're threatening my freedom. I'm free. I am me. I'll do whatever I want to do. To those of you who are religious and love rules and guidelines, you love the commands. You love it when I tell people what to do. You love it when I stand up here and I start slapping everybody. You're like, yes, that's awesome. Do that. Keep doing that. More of that, please. And the reason why you like that is because you can chart your progress. You're like, I don't do that. Ah, I'm in. Money. Or I, I do what he told me. I already do that, pastor. I'm in. I'm amazing. Thank you. Both of those approaches are absolutely wrong. And the reason why they're wrong is every single imperative, every single command in Scripture is based on an indicative. Every single imperative, everything the Bible tells you to do is always undergirded and based on a truth. But we always hear the commands, and we never hear the truth. Unless you understand and drive the truth deep into your heart, you'll never understand the command. You'll never get it. You'll despise the commands, or you'll use the commands to justify yourself. You'll read the commands and go, I do that, I'm in. Or you look at the command, you're like, I'll never do that. The great Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson said in one of his sermons, so often in our preaching, speaking to pastors, our indicatives, truths, are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives, the commands. Your truths, what's true about the Christian is not strong enough to support what you tell people what they, should, that they, what they should do. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because they've looked at the New Testament and all that we, that we ourselves have seen. We've seen our own failure and we've seen the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. I think that's so true. I don't ever want to be guilty of that. So before we get into Colossians 3, talking about what you and I must do as Christians, we must understand what's been done to us and for us. It's the gospel indicatives that support and sustain the imperatives. Let me give you a couple of examples, if, if this is still a little bit vague for you. First example, you are loved by God. That's an indicative. That's a fact. That's a truth. You are loved by God. We talked about that two weeks ago. You are beloved of God. Now, here's the command. Now, here's the imperative. Because of that, love one another. 
You are loved by God. That's true. That's over you. You are loved by God. Now you love, love one another. See, you could never truly love people, especially people you don't like, unless you know the fact, the declaration of God's love for you. And if you don't understand God's love for you and you try to love other people, that love will be manipulative, codependent, and self-seeking. You must be liberated by the love of God before you can really love other people. Example two, you have been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. You have been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. That's an indicative. That's a fact. That's a truth about you. You have been forgiven. If you placed your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. Now, here's the imperative. Here's the command. Forgive others. Forgive other people. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Have patience because God has been patient with you. Have love because God has loved you. Have mercy because God has had mercy on you. See how the motivation changes? You don't just have patience with someone because you want to be a good Christian or you don't want to be cursed by God or go to hell. You're patient because God has been so patient with you. And you realize that. God, you're so patient with me. When I turn away, when I ignore you, God, you're still there every single time you meet with me, every single time. You gently deal with me, even though I don't deserve it. And then you start looking at somebody who's late. You start looking at someone who's slow. You start looking at someone who doesn't get it. And you realize, you know what? You're slow, and you don't get it. But God is patient with you, and then all of a sudden that changes in your heart. You're like, I can be patient with them. I can be patient. That's a command. Why? Because God has been patient with me. I can forgive. Why can I forgive? Because God has forgiven me. I can love. Why? Because God has loved me. All the commands of the scriptures are based on what's true about you in Christ. All of a sudden, that command is possible. All of a sudden, you can be patient. And it's not by willpower. It's by gospel power. So all of a sudden, you realize God's patient with me. I could totally be patient with this person. God has loved me. God has stooped down and got dirty for me. I can do that for other people. It's not, I'm going to do this because God's going to like me if I do this. And I'll look good in the community and good in the church. And I'll get status. That, that's not sustainable. You will quit after months, years, or you'll get bitter. And you're like, this is not worth it. And you get burnt out and tired. But when it comes from this fountain of God has loved me, I have been loved by God, then everything switches. And there's a fountain that never runs dry there. So back to our question. Is Christ your life? That question is not an imperative. It doesn't come with a checklist to see if it's true. It's an indicative. It is true. It's true about you. Because you've placed your faith in Jesus. He is your life. Now what does that mean that he's your life? Well, according to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, it means three things. It means you have died, you have been raised, and you are Christ's. Christ is your life, it means that you have died, that you have been raised, and that you are Christ's. These, all of these are indicatives. All of these are true of you. Before we even talk about the commands of Colossians, we must get this. You have died. It's like those movies. If you've seen those uh, certain movies, in order for the main character to be truly free, he has to fake his own death. 
So all the, all, all the things that were held over him and upon him had to be released, and everyone just stops looking, and everyone stops searching because he died, or they thought he died. Colossians 3.3 says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is a bit confusing when you think about it. If you've studied Romans, if you've studied the Gospels, you're like, okay, I'm called to die, but doesn't the Bible say that I'm already dead? I'm dead in my sin? How does that, how, how, how? in one sense, Scripture says that you're already dead, Before you ever met Jesus, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, the Bible says that you're dead. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You're dead. But in another sense, we're told in scriptures that we have to die. We have to die to ourselves. Jesus calls everyone to take up their cross to die and to follow him. So here's a question, something that I was wrestling through this week. How are we supposed to die when we're already dead? What does Paul mean in Colossians 3 that we died? It seems a bit confusing. What did you die to if you were already dead in your sins? And this is what you died to. You died to what you thought was making you alive. This is what it means to die. You died to what you thought was making you really alive. You died to what you thought was giving you an identity. You died to what you thought was giving you a self that old Bible word called sin. You died to sin. You died to making up a righteousness of your own. You died to the fact that you know that I'm not gonna be saved through recycling and and composting. I'm not saved through volunteering or being open-minded. I'm not saved by those things. You died to what you thought was giving you life, but in reality was causing you more death. You died to finding your identity in what you do or what you have or what you desire. You died but you have been raised. Paul says in Philippians that he wants to know the resurrection of Christ intimately. I, thought, I think this is the most, one of the most intriguing things that Paul's ever written. He goes, I wanna know the power of the resurrection. I wanna know it intimately. I wanna know it personally. I wanna know it myself. Why does he wanna know the resurrection so bad? Because Paul died. Paul realized he died to every pursuit, everything, He's died to everything. He actually says in Galatians 2.20, no longer I who live but Christ lived in me. The life I lived, I, I died. And now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have been raised. You have a new life in Christ. A new life dependent on what Christ has done, not your own righteousness. On what Christ has done for you. Not your own righteousness. Heard a quote this week. It was, I guess it was a quote from a quote from a quote, so I couldn't like, tell you who said it, but it's still true. <laughs> the determining factor in my relationship with God is not my past or my present, but Christ's past and Christ's present. See, my, the determining factor in my relationship with God is not what I've done today. If I've had a good day today, if I've obeyed all the commandments today, if I've prayed as long as I should have prayed today, it's never dependent on those things, ever, because it becomes a a sliding scale. Some days you're doing great, some days you're not doing so great. It's based on Christ and his standing. You have been united with Christ. It is his standing, not yours, that determines your relationship. The well-being of your life is dependent on his life, and where is Christ? Paul says he's at the right hand of God. Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love this. You're hidden with Christ in God. I love it because it's not just with Christ, but it's Christ in God. It's like double true. It's like not only in Christ, but in Christ in God. 
our life, our true life, is an extension of that permanent life, which is in the Father's presence. Um, The French philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal said, "Not not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. We only know life and death through Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the meaning of our life or of our death, of God or of ourselves. Here's the thing. When, you, when it says that you, you're, you have a new identity in Christ, it's not that you are no longer you. It is in a sense, but you are really you. That's what it means. You are really alive. You are really, whatever it was that you were before, you were trying to use that, that thing to leverage it for your own salvation, for your own validation, for your own justification. And when you turn to Christ, you become who you really are in him. And those things don't make or break you anymore. Those things are used to, that you use to enjoy life. Those things are used to, to see the goodness of God. You are Christ's. This is what is proclaimed over Colossians 3. He is your life. What is your life? Your life is in Christ. One commentator puts it like this. Not abstinence, not indulgence, not mystic immersion into external symbolism, not in these, but in the appropriation of Christ in his person and his work does the Christian life consist. The Christian must, be, must live over again the experience of the Christ. He must die with him, rise with him, live with him in an endless, ever-growing life. You have died. You have been raised, and you are Christ's. Because Christ is our life, he is also our hope. Because Christ is our life, he is also our joy. He is also our sustenance. He is our reward. He is also our prize. Because Christ is our life, he is our source. He is our glory. Christ is our life. That is the truest thing about you. He is your life. This is not true only if you date the right people or say the right things or do A, B, and C. It's true about you if you place your faith in Jesus, period. It's an indicative. It's an accomplished fact. And not one accomplished by you, but one that was accomplished by another. One who has a perfect record, Jesus Christ. And the best way to read Colossians chapter 3 is this. You have been raised with Christ and have new life. So become what you already are. That is the challenge of Colossians 3. Become who you already are. What are you? And what is the truest thing about you? You have died, and you have been raised, and Christ is your life, and you will appear with him in glory. And one day, one day soon, God will bring to public fruition what is most true about you. Paul says it's hidden, but it will be revealed. It's hidden now. See, your identity in Christ, you might not see it. Other people might not necessarily see it. It's there. It's true about you. But one day, he's going to reveal it. It's going to come to public fruition. That you have died with Christ and you have been raised with him. And when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. 
See, in Scripture, in the New Testament, we're not promised heaven when we die as Christians. We're promised Jesus when we die as Christians. We're not promised a cloud and a harp. We're promised Jesus. And what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that on the coming day of the Lord, when he calls those who are his, with an angelic shout and the blast of the trumpet of God, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why will we always be with the Lord? Because we're promised Jesus. Because Christ is our life. So, as you worship today, this is how I want you to worship. I want you to begin to grab onto this fact. Not just keep it out there in the distance, like apply it to your own heart. This is how I want you to do it. As you're worshiping today, I want you to say to your career, career, you're great and I'm thankful, but you are not my life. Christ is my life. School, it's been a love-hate thing. (laughs) You probably helped me get a good career, but you are not my life. Christ is my life. In heartbreak, They say that you'll make me stronger. You might make me stronger, but my strength is found in Christ. You are not my life. Christ is my life. In desire, sometimes you make me better, sometimes you leave me paralyzed. But you are not my life. Christ is my life. Christ is your life. That is the truest thing about you. You have died. You have been raised. And Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you are will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would apply this to our hearts, that we would really live this way in the mundaneness of our lives, in the excitement of our lives. If we're just so stoked right now because we just got engaged or we know that tomorrow we face another grueling work week. I pray that Christ, the truth of that, if we are believers, that Christ is our life. And if And for those that that have not placed their faith in you, would you give them faith, God? Give them faith to trust in you and to believe and hope in you. I pray that that people would, would stop. I pray that we would stop trying to build our identity on movable parts, on things that shift and move. May our life be built on the solid rock of Christ. And I pray before we we ever start to try to obey you, we would realize what you've done for us. So I pray, God, that we would worship, that we would turn our our backs on, repent of the things that we have tried to uh, make to give us an identity, to secure us, to justify us, to justify our existence, and we would turn to Christ and proclaim that you are our life. In Jesus' name, amen.